This is the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Each episode, we help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word. Invest your heart and personal life into your study and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey, welcome to this month's episode of the Scripture Study Project. We are back this month with another question that we have has been on our mind a little bit. And I think this one kind of came, as you'll see as you look ahead any bit to all of the weeks of, of study in the Come Follow Me um, manual, that we're kind of all over the place in, in the Gospels. We're telling a lot of different stories, a lot of different people, a lot of different things going on and happening. When we go from like the, the middle of the Savior's ministry up to almost the very ends, so we're covering a lot of years and time too. Yeah. And so I think there was a lot packed into this and then a lot going on for what we what we wanted to talk about and what we wanted to focus on. But I hope that we came to a question that you feel like is helpful for you as it has been for us as we've studied. The question that we want to study today is, how does our identity influence judgment? And now, as Zach said, the last few weeks or up to the last week of the Savior's life is some of the things that we'll be studying. And we find out a lot of, or we read and study a lot of parables about the end and a lot of the disciples and people that meet Jesus asking him, wait, so what does happen next? Or what's going to happen to me? What do I need to do? Um, And so it made us think, you know, isn't that a question all of us have is what is, what does come next? What do I need to do to measure up? And who do I need to be to be accepted, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I think a good place to start is actually Mark chapter 10. Um, The story of this rich young ruler that comes to the Savior and asks him, this is Mark 10 verse 17, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, the Savior will answer that question with him. Um, And of course, we know the story. Uh, Mark's the one that gives us the beautiful detail about the Savior beholding him, loved him, um, and gives him the answer to the question, which is not so much sell all that you have, but sell all that you have and follow me. Um, But what's interesting is that question and that interchange between the Savior and, and this rich young ruler spurs on a similar question with the apostles. In verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Matthew and Luke add the question, So what do we therefore have for it? What what do we get? So to your point, uh, it's individuals coming to the Savior and asking about eternal life. It's the apostles asking about their standing. Uh, It's Apostles asking about the second coming and what the world will look like and where they will stand and if they'll be on his right hand or how long, how many people will be getting into heaven and who gets into heaven and what requirements are there to get into heaven. And so there's a lot focused on that, which I think was a main part of the reason why this question was so significant for us. And with all the parables Jesus teaches about judgment and you know, even just thinking of the parable of the 10 virgins is the rewards and the punishments for those that maybe don't measure up. And I always have to question myself, like, I don't feel like I'm someone that worries about it too much. Like, am I doing enough? Of course, everyone, all of us have those questions inside, but also like, how serious do I need to be taking this 
idea for me of what it means to be worthy for or ready for the second coming or for judgment. Um, and what does that mean for me? Yeah, well, that's such a good, good question. So I, I think what we can do in our study together that I think will make a great lens for anyone else that's listening is look at um, how identity influences judgment. So the first point or the first story that comes to mind that has this kind of end of end of times feel to it is the parable of the laborers. And if you remember, this is the parable of uh, there's a, an owner of a vineyard and in Mar Matthew chapter 20, he goes out into early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. He agrees with them for a day's wage, a penny a day, and sends them to work. And then he goes out uh, at different times during the day and agrees with those that he hires, like he says in verse 4, to pay them what is right. So he hires all these laborers, and then at the very end of the day, he calls them unto him for payment, and he pays them all a day's wage, even though some of them worked from the morning until the evening, and some of them worked for just one hour. And so the one of those that has that worked from the morning says in verse 12, these last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat in the day. Now, I love the response of this master of the vineyard, and I often think we call this parable the parable of the laborers, but I, th I wonder if a better term for it might be the parable of the good master of the vineyard. Because listen to the response he gives in verse 13, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that as thine, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? The first, I think, significant um, impact on our final judgment actually has nothing to do with us. In this parable, it doesn't matter whether the laborers began in the morning or in the evening. Their payment was not determined by their labor, but by the fact that this vineyard owner is good and wants to be merciful and kind and loving to as many people as he can. When we talk about our final judgment, I think one of the things that we mistakenly do is we quickly jump to what we need to be or what we need to do in order to quote-unquote, qualify for the celestial kingdom. And as I study this parable, and as I think about um, just the gospel of Jesus Christ and how much emphasis he places on illustrating and showing his kindness, his mercy, and his love, both in his actions and in his teachings, I think it becomes clear that the, the lion's share of final judgment will be based on God's identity, his personality, not on mine. And to that point, about now about 10 years ago, Elder Holland gave a talk called The Laborers in the Vineyard, all about this parable. And I want to share what he something he taught. He says, This parable, like all parables, is not really about laborers or wages any more than the others are about sheep and goats. This is a story about God's goodness, his patience and forgiveness, and the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is a story about generosity and compassion. It is a story about grace. It underscores the thought I heard many years ago that surely the thing God enjoys most about being God is the thrill of being merciful, especially to those who don't expect it and often feel they don't deserve it. And I don't think you need much more than to explain anything besides exactly what Elder Holland said. That really hits at home. But he also did mention something. And I know last month I talked a lot about um, sheep, some of the parables uh, really hit hit home for me of um, the, do we hear his voice? And so one of the parables that stood out to me in this was about a different story, a different perspective about sheep. And that's in Matthew 15, four, starting in verse three. Um, he told them this parable, what man among you who has hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he find till he finds it and then when he has found it he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them rejoice with me because i have found my lost sheep um as much as that story is about the goodness of of the savior who is generous and giving to everyone I love the thought of all of these parables that um, not only are we the sheep that need to learn him, but we also are the sheep that need to remember that he's looking for us. He's going to find us. He's going to reach out for us. And he's going to rejoice with every step that we take toward him. And he is very invested in us understanding who we are, that we are someone that he cares about. A huge part of our identity is that we belong to him. Mm-hmm. Well, and it changes the way that you view judgment. It changes the emotions you have around God as judge or uh, events such as the second coming to know that my final judgment is if we were taking a pie chart of what matters in final judgment to know that the biggest part of that pie chart is God's identity and his personality as a, a good shepherd or a, a good vineyard owner, that he's someone that genuinely has a takes a thrill, as Elder Holland says, at being merciful, that uh, changes the way that I feel and reduces a lot of the anxiety and the burden that maybe we might stress as we think about final judgment. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of the heavy feelings we have associated with our own actions or our own mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's not to say that we don't play a part in our judgment because of agency as much as God would want all of his children to return to him and to live a celestial life. He can't force that to happen. And so of course there is a part of our judgment that is dependent on us. And so the second aspect of final judgment, if the first is God's identity, the second aspect is our own identity. And for this one, I want to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Um, This parable has embedded in it a good father. So you have in here uh, uh, an indication or or an illustration of the first point. Um, So much of this parable is, again, it's called the prodigal son. It could easily be called the parable of the, the forgiving father. But it is interesting to look at this prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful. uh, And to see, to follow his story. So to recap the story, 
this father has two sons, one who stays loyal to him and stays home when given his inheritance, the other who, when given his inheritance, goes and wastes it on riotous living, is the King James language. And then in verse 17, this is Luke chapter 15, says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make thee as one of thy hired servants. His expectation, knowing that his father is good, his expectation is still that his judgment will be as one of the servants, that he'll be uh, the least in his father's house, which makes his father's response all the more powerful for him and for us in understanding um, our, our final judgment. Verse 20, his father arose, or he arose, sorry, and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And his son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But his father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it. And let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive. He was lost, and is found." And they began to be merry. Um, the symbolism is important here. Putting a robe on his son. If you think back to Jacob putting the coat of many colors on Joseph, putting a robe around a son signifies that that son is an inheritor of the birthright. So the son comes and says, I am no more worthy to be thy son. You should disown me. The father says, far from it. He puts a robe on his shoulders. He puts a ring, which likewise represents uh, an inheritor's role and cements him as part of the family. The robe and the ring and the shoes and the celebration. What's interesting here is this comes, of course, because this father is good, but it also comes because the son has a divine identity. He is the son of the father and that cannot change. Um, and so when we think of our final judgment, uh, if the biggest part of the pie is God's identity, a not-to-be-discounted uh, second part of the pie is our own divine identity. Because we are children of God, we are inheritors of the kingdom of God. Paul says it exactly that way. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of the kingdom of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, if we follow him, then we are heirs of the kingdom. In fact, I had a friend of mine years ago that said, we often talk about getting to heaven as if we start at the bottom of the mountain and have to somehow climb our way to the top. He said, in reality, we were born on top of the mountain. Because we are children of heavenly parents, we're inheritors of the kingdom that they have. I have to share uh, an excerpt from this short devotional from Christian author Rebecca Ferris because I love the way that she interpreted some of these scriptures um, related to this topic and in this this month's study. Um, She writes, In Luke 12, Jesus invites his disciples to look at creation so they can learn about God's providence. Consider the ravens, he enjoins. 
They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. When I remember this story, I always get the birds mixed up. I remember it as consider the sparrows. Sparrows are adorable, tiny, flighty things. Obviously, God would take care of the darling sparrows. Bless them. But Jesus said ravens, big, black, ominous, croaking ravens. Ravens appear frequently in our myths, stories, and symbols. Remember Edgar Allan Poe's Raven Speaking Nevermore or the portentous Tower of London ravens? The raven also appears in Tolkien's The Hobbit and Shakespeare's Othello. In all its manifestations, the raven is not an omen of sunshine and happiness, but God cares for these birds. If I were to associate myself with a bird on my bad days, I might choose a raven or a turkey or probably a crow. Regardless, Jesus nudges me. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? He's not asking me to imagine. He's asking me to look. God is taking care of the raven. It's a fact. They are a little creepy, but God's got them. <laughs> I like that ending. Like that. It's probably why I wanted to read it. But I I just love the idea of... Um, aren't you worth much more than the birds? And he doesn't care what they look like. He doesn't care if it's a cute little sparrow or if it is the the creepy, ominous raven or whatever other thing you're feeling. But I love that idea because earlier in chapter 12, he does talk about sparrows. And then later on, he, he uses this as the ravens as this comparison of like, I aren't you worth much more than these birds? I care for you. This is who you are. It doesn't matter whether we're having a bad day or a bad year. Um, but if we can remember who we are, that we are those joint heirs that God has given us so much. And I really like how these first two points, um, how these points of our identity affect how we look toward the future and towards the second coming or judgment or whatever else is coming next for us, how they play off of each other. Um, I think that these are the basis. If we can remember who God is and how he cares for us and his identity, then it makes it much easier to remember how much he cares for us. And I love all these little examples that of, of the scriptures of, you know, consider the lilies, consider the birds, consider all these things that I take care of. And I'm very invested in these joint heirs with me. And I love the way that it's kind of a cycle. They just reinforce each other. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. And I think that cycle continues for us. You know, we we talk about God being our Heavenly Father. Um, and I think we do a really good job of remembering that when we pray. Um, we remember that really well when we think of going through our difficult times, that Heavenly Father is a Father and that He loves us and cares for us. And then we start talking about judgment he changes in our mind from being a father to a stern, eternal judge. And to understand both his identity and the fact that because of our divine identity as his children, he feels familiarly tied to us, I think is to look at judgment and say, he's the same loving father at judgment as he, has, as he is during the rest of our life. He cares for us. He feels uh, a tie to us, uh, a love that transcends just genuine affection, but um, is the kind of love that parents have for their children. I, for me, I, I don't know if I really understood a parental love for a child until we had our own children. And I remember, I've said this uh, to our kids, but I remember learning in probably high school seminary that you don't fall in love with someone. 
right? That when you're dating someone or you're in a relationship, you don't fall in love. You choose to love someone. Love is an action. My mom would always say love is a verb. It's something you do. It's something you choose, which I agree with, except in how it applies to parents and children. Um, when you walk into your kid's room at night, when we walk into our kid's room at night and I look at them, I fall in love. And it has nothing to do with what they what they do. In fact, it's often in spite of what they have done that day. I'm exhausted and they've annoyed me and their toys are all over, their emotions are all over, whatever. But when I see them at night, I am overwhelmed with love for them for no other reason than the fact that this is my child. And if that's how a mortal parent feels about a, a mortal child, uh, I think it gives a bit of a glimmer, a glimpse into how uh, a father whose divine identity is loving feels about his divine children. One of the, as we've been talking about some of these titles, like the parable of the laborers, that God's identity is, let's call that parable the great master. Um, I've recently just been reading a book about prayer that really invites the reader to invite God in, in a creative sort of way. And um, she often refers to him as the great creator. Hmm. And I think, what about, what about those titles? The, I love thinking of him as my father. I also love thinking of him as the great master, as the great creator. He's here to, his identity is to help us and create us and also help us create wonderful, meaningful things. And that's how he feels about us is he wants to help us create beauty and goodness in our life. Um, and I think, I don't know, I guess you know, we made these into two points, God's identity and our divine identity. But again, I think they just, they really come back and just kind of circle around each other. But I love the idea of that, that he, he really cares about us. And that's understating, I think, by saying it that way. You know, as I think about all this, one of the things I love most about these uh, two points is we live in a world where there's a lot of change uh, and a lot of uncertainty because of change. And I think part of that can maybe influence some of the anxiety we might feel about um, heaven and judgment. But to know that the two biggest determiners of our eternal salvation, our eternal joy, are completely unchangeable is really comforting to me. God's identity will never change. And my identity as a child of God will never change. And even though I might adopt or have mortal circumstances and characteristics and traits that change, um, which we'll talk about actually in just a minute, those two things that are central to our, our eternal life don't ever change. And that's, that's really comforting to me. However, all that being said, there is change required in order for us to receive eternal life. Uh, The Doctrine and Covenants is explicit about how we are to preach nothing but repentance, i.e. change, because of how important it is when it comes to our happiness in this life and our eternal life in the world to come. Uh, To go back to Mark chapter 10, actually to back up one chapter to Mark chapter 9, uh, as Jesus and his apostles are walking around, they start to argue with each other And he hears them arguing. And so this is Mark chapter 9, verse 33. He says, or asks them, What was it that you disputed amongst yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. 
And he sat down and called the twelve unto them and said, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last and the servant of all. Their question is about how to be the greatest. What's interesting is then when he talks to the rich young ruler, it's not about being great. It's about being good. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. We talk about a good Samaritan and a good king and a good vineyard owner and a good father. Uh, that goodness is something that can be acquired. And we can acquire it through a covenant relationship with our Heavenly Father. All that being said, change is important for us in order to receive eternal life. The Doctrine and Covenants talks a lot about how important the, the preaching of repentance is or the preaching of change is in order for us to return and live with our Heavenly Father, in order to be fit for the kingdom, as the hymn says. Which makes sense, right? In order for the celestial kingdom to be the celestial kingdom, it has to be filled with people that are willing to change their character through a covenant relationship with Christ to be celestial kind of people. It's the celestial kingdom because people there are loving and kind and forgiving and generous and they take care of each other. That's part of what makes the celestial kingdom celestial. So it makes sense that in order for us to be fit for that kingdom, there has to be some change involved. I have to be able to put off the natural man and the things that uh, might pull me away in my selfishness or my covetousness, my anger, and to be able to convert my character through covenant relationship with Christ. Um, in Matthew chapter 22, the parable here is the parable of the wedding feast. And if you remember, this is the one where the kingdom, where the king uh, invites everybody to this wedding feast. But in order for them to attend the feast, they have to have garments. Um, and so, so he sends messengers out into the city and gathers as many people as are willing to come to the feast and provides them with garments. However, he then goes in and sees someone inside the wedding that doesn't have the wedding garment on. And he says, this is Matthew 22, verse 12, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." As a side note, that many are called, few are chosen is the same thing that shows up at the end of the parable of the laborers. Elder Bednar in October last year gave this um, commentary on that parable and explains both the phrase many are called, few are chosen and the, importance, uh, the important need for us to uh, choose to be chosen. He says this, the invitation to the wedding feast and the choice to partake in the feast are related but different. The invitation is to all men and women. An individual may even accept the invitation and sit down at the feast, yet not be chosen to partake because he or she does not have the appropriate wedding garment of converting faith in the Lord Jesus and his divine grace. Thus, we have both God's call and our individual response to that call. And many have been called, but few chosen. 
to be or to be chosen, become chosen, is not an exclusive status conferred upon us. Rather, you and I ultimately can choose to be chosen through the righteous exercise of our moral agency. Please note the use of the word chosen in the following familiar phrase from the Doctrine and Covenants. Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much on the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men. And then he concludes, I believe the implication of these verses is quite straightforward. God does not have a list of favorites to which we must hope our names will someday be added. He does not limit the chosen to a restricted few. Instead, our hearts, our desires, our honoring of sacred gospel covenants and ordinances, our obedience to the commandments, and most importantly, the Savior's redeeming grace and mercy determine whether we are counted as one of God's chosen. In other words, we are invited to the wedding feast because God is good and because we are divine children of God. But whether we choose to come to the feast and change to put on the wedding garment, to put on Christ, that is left up to us. And it's a not insignificant part of what matters when it comes to final judgment. And maybe to wrap up, I loved this kind of thought and this question of identity and judgment kind of permeating in my mind as I studied this these sections this this month and looked and came across um, the great commandment where someone asks another question to Jesus. One, this is in Matthew 22, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So of course this triggered for me like, hey, this is exactly what it what it's all about. It all comes, doesn't it all usually come down to this actually? Mm-hmm. Well, it says that right on this, hang all the law and the prophets. Oh, I should have read that last <laughs> part. But I just love the idea of, and kind of the answers that we came to in this question of um, that we're asking today. It first, it's God. Love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then coming next, which you can't really love your, lab- love your neighbor until you understand who you are and you really love yourself. So understand your div- divine identity. And then not only does the next step come, I think, easier to love your neighbor, um, but it also helps you to change yourself and help others grow and develop and get outside of yourself too. So I just love the way that those lined up with all of this today. I love that simple way to view these three points. Um, Loving God because of his divine identity, loving and recognizing your own divine identity, and then taking on the character of Christ and loving others. Um, I think that's a really great way to symbolize or to, to summarize what we've studied. I also think it's a great lens for your study this month as you look at all of these chapters. Look for truths and details about God that help you understand and love his identity more. Look for descriptions and definitions, illustrations of your own divine identity that help that become more solid in your mind and heart. And of course, look for things that you want to change in the way that you interact with others. Um, Examples and teachings that motivate you to be more loving 
for your neighbors. I think that would be a fabulous way to study this month uh, and at the very least gives you a great study and at the very most helps us to prepare even better for that eternal life that the Savior promised. Thank you so much for studying with us this month. Have a wonderful study and we will see you next month.